You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. During his 47 years with the Saturday uh, Post, Saturday Evening Post, that's what it was, Saturday Evening Post, Norman Rockwell painted or illustrated some 323 covers for the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, if you've ever seen, in my opinion, a Norman Rockwell painting, you love a Norman Rockwell painting. He was an artist. What is done today in the name of art is not art. Norman Rockwell was an artist. I love to see the paintings of Norman Rockwell. He was, he had the ability to capture on canvas the America that everybody loved and the childhood that everybody shared and the emotions that we all were familiar with. And Norman Rockwell's paintings, even though they were titled, didn't need a title. They didn't need a caption and they didn't need an explanation. When you looked at it, you didn't have to have somebody there explaining to you what it symbolized because you knew instantly. And if an average picture paints a thousand words, a Norman Rockwell painting paints a book because they speak volumes. Just this morning, I showed my daughter this picture. She's eight and I asked her, what is this? And she explained what it is and and just looking at it kind of got basically the gist of this picture. That's how simple it is. Now, this picture that I'm holding is called Homecoming GI. May 26, 1945, in the heat of the battles and the end of, nearing the end of World War II, Norman Rockwell managed to capture an emotion that all of America was feeling. And standing behind this, let me describe it to you. Standing behind this kind of brick two-story building in a rather rundown neighborhood is a returning soldier, and he is dressed in his best uniform, and he's holding a duffel bag at his side. And standing on the porch is obviously his mother, and she's facing him. The soldier's back is to us, and he's looking at the the back, looks like from the alley, the back of his home. And his mother is standing on the porch, and she's leaning out over the railing with her, her white apron on, and her arms are open wide, and this big joyous expression on her face. It looks as if she has been been cooking in the kitchen in preparation for her son's homecoming. And his brothers and sisters, his siblings, are bounding off of the porch out of the back door, skipping two and three steps on their way to give a big hug to this returning soldier. And the neighborhood kids have crawled up in a tree like Zacchaeus, and they're looking down at him to get a shot, and they're waving their arms. And in the uh, on the building next to their home, another two-story apartment building, the neighbor lady stands on the back porch, and she's grinning as she's taking in the scene of this wonderful family reunion. And... Up in the second story, there are kids who are looking out. Everybody's looking on. The proud father of this returning soldier is standing in the doorway, smoking his pipe and around the corner off to the edge, wanting to be unseen, at least for the moment, is this young lady who is dressed nice for the scene, and she's standing in the shadows looking adoringly at this young lad. She's not his wife, but apparently from the look on her face and her posture, she would like to be sometime soon. And she's remaining hidden for the time being. Somehow Norman Rockwell captured it. The emotion, the joy, the uncertainty, the expectation of a homecoming. After you have been gone for a while, there's something about coming home. There is 
certainty mixed with uncertainty. There is the familiar with mixed with the unfamiliar. What is going to have changed in my absence? What is different since I have been gone? Have you ever been homesick? Some people are plagued by homesickness. I've never in my life remember a, a day of ever being homesick. For me, home was wherever I happened to be at the moment. That's where I was. That was home. I could make myself as comfortable on my friend's floor, staying the night as I could on my grandma's floor, staying the night. During the summer months after my um, third and fourth and fifth grade of school, my uncle brought me down to California. It was a reward for good grades. Two, three months I stayed in California with my uncle. It meant Knott's Berry Farm and SeaWorld and, and fishing in the San Francisco Bay. It was always a great time. Homesick? Never. Never home, homesick. I could go to camp for a week, homesick? Not at all. I could go to college, be homesick? No. Now, it doesn't mean that I wasn't looking forward to coming back because when my absence, I did miss my family and my dog and home and all of the familiar stuff that goes with home. And I always looked forward to returning home. Sleeping in your own bed. How many of you have ever been gone away for a long period of time And the thing you look forward to is that night when you get home, crawling into bed and sleeping on your own bed. Familiar, friends, family, the comforts, the amenities, that feeling of being home. You cannot convince me that Paul and Barnabas were not looking forward to coming home. They have been on the road for almost a year, probably the better part of a year, if not a whole year that they've been gone. From Antioch. And we have been Paul's traveling companion with Luke as our tour guide as we have traveled along with him through Acts 13 and Acts 14 now, through all of these different cities and planting these different churches, being involved in his ministry. Because of what Luke has written, we are able almost to sit on the sidelines and be with Paul as all of this is going on. And it seems that Luke has given us sort of a backdoor access to Paul and to his ministry. And now Luke is going to tell us about Paul's return home. And I'm sure that that could not have come quickly enough for Paul and Barnabas. They've been gone almost a year, and we pick it up in Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 24 through 28 this morning. So you'll need your Bibles, and they'll need to be open to Acts chapter 14. And we're going to read those verses, 24 through 28. It says that they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Now we're going to notice three things. First of all, we're going to look at the remainder of their journey. Then we're going to look at their return to Antioch. And then third, we're going to look at their report to the church. The remainder of their journey is wrapped up in just two verses. Do you notice the brevity with which Luke deals with that? Do you notice how quickly he moves over that territory? Having passed through Pisidia and into Pamphylia, they leave, they sail, and they go to Antioch. In two verses, he covers hundreds of miles. He covers many days of trekking through the the mountains and down onto the seaport. He covers the preaching of the word in Perga, and then he covers a ship ride from Atalia over to Antioch south. Now on the back of your bulletin insert, there is a map there that shows you all that Luke covered in just two verses. Now don't get lost in Pisidia. Don't get lost in Pamphylia. Don't be confused with those terms. 
those are just Luke's way of telling us Paul retraced his steps. Antioch was in Pisidia. That's the first church that he give, first message that we get from Paul in Acts 13. That was delivered in Pisidian Antioch. So that's where Antioch is at, is in Pisidia. Then he travels down into Pamphylia. Pamphylia is the coastal region. It has Perga is there and Italia is there. It's seaport. And so Luke says basically Paul retraced his steps. When he got back to Perga, Paul preached the word in Perga and then left from Italia and sailed to Antioch. That's a pretty quickened pace, isn't it? Now, there's something about Perga that's interesting. Do you remember why Perga is significant? What happened in Perga? Because Paul's been through there before on the way in. And interestingly enough, on the way in, it doesn't mention that he stopped in Perga for any ministry. But something did happen in Perga. Acts 13, verse 13. When they arrived in Perga of Pamphylia, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's what Perga is famous for, for Paul. Abandonment. His traveling companion left him. Barnabas returned to Jerusalem for whatever reason. So Perga's got some memories for Paul. He arrives back there and Luke just says he stops for a minute to preach the word. Now, coming into all of this missionary activity, as Paul lands there, he doesn't preach in Perga. Luke just says he moves on from Perga and goes to Antioch to preach. Why didn't Paul stop in Perga and preach the word on the way in? A couple of different reasons. Number one, John Mark had left him. It may be that Paul just said, look, let's move on. There's no reason to stay here. We'll catch this on the way back. This has happened. Let's get out of here. It could also be due to the fact that Paul likely had some sort of an illness that was driving him north up into the Galatian regions. Because he writes to the Galatians and he says, it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. He got something in Perga that made him and Barnabas leave, made he and Barnabas leave and they just took off and went north up into the Galatian regions. So it could be because Barnabas, John Mark had left him. It could be because he was ill and he needed to leave. But when he arrives back in Perga, they stop and they preach the word. And do you notice that Luke doesn't tell us of any converts? We don't read of many people believe. We don't read that Paul stayed there and confounded the Jews who opposed. We don't read of any opposition. We don't read of any positive fruit in Perga. Friends, that's the way Perga is. It was the place for Paul of where he was abandoned. And when Paul did minister in Perga, there's just nothing to report. There's no church that started there. It seems that nothing happened there. There are going to be Pergas in your life and ministry. There will be days and there will be times when the fruit is there and it is abundant and it is clear and it is blessed and God is active and things seem to be happening and then there will be Pergas. The Antiochs and Lystras and Iconiums and Derbies are the places where there was fruit and Paul arrived in Perga and there was nothing to report. There was no church that was started there. How do I know that there was no church started there? Because on Paul's second missionary journey, as he travels back through this region, he hits Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, but from the book of Acts and from all of Paul's writings, he never returned to Perga. Did he have something against Perga? I don't think so. I just don't think it was fruitful ministry for Paul. And so he skipped over it. He had been there twice, having really had nothing of produce and no production, no fruitful ministry there, he skips it on the way back and he moves on to other regions where they hadn't heard the gospel yet. You're going to run into Pergas in your life. Don't think that God doesn't want you to minister there. He does. And so do it with faithfulness. Paul preached the word. He was faithful in it, but there was nothing to report. And so he moves on from Perga and Luke says in verse 25, that after they spoke the word, they went down to Attila and from there they sailed to Antioch. 
Then they took a ship from Italia, which was the, the seaport of Perga. They took a ship from there and headed over to Antioch. That's the return journey. Maybe Luke's quickening of the narrative is indicative of how their pace quickened. They have gone into uncharted territories and planted churches where the gospel has never been. They've discipled believers. They have finished the work that God had given them to do. And now the Holy Spirit has punched their return ticket. And you know how it is when you have been gone from home a long time and it's time to return. When you start heading back home, you just want to show up and get home. And so your pace quickens a bit and your expectations are up and nothing sort of stops you and you just want to press on and get home. I think that's how Paul and Barnabas were. They've planted the churches in those four cities. They've completed the work, established the believers, appointed the elders, discipled them. They're established. They're functioning. Now it's time to go home. And Luke says they just shoom and on to Antioch they went. I think they made it in record time. I don't think they stopped for anything. I think they wanted to get home. Look at their return to Antioch. It says they sailed into Antioch in verse 26. They sailed to Antioch from which they had commended, been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. Now you're saying, I'm confused a little bit here on the Antiochs. There are two Antiochs. There are two Antiochs, the cities. There's Antioch of Syria, which was Paul's hometown. Or not hometown, his home church. That's where the church in Antioch was. That's who commissioned him. Then there's Antioch to the west, which is Antioch of Pisidia, another town with the same name. So Paul now is returning to his home church. This is the church where he and Barnabas had pastored before being called into ministry. Do you remember that Barnabas came to Antioch to check up on the work there, having seen this growing church where believers were added to its number daily? He went to Tarsus to fetch Saul. And he found Saul after much searching, brought him back to Antioch to help out in the work there. And then Paul and Barnabas ministered in that church as pastors for probably a couple of years, teaching believers, and many were added to their number, until in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the work for which I have called them. And so then the church recognized them, and having been called, they were commissioned and they were sent out. So there are some strong emotional and spiritual ties to this church. The church would be looking forward to the day when their pastors will be back. They've been gone for a year. And Paul and Barnabas are looking forward to getting back to those believers that they had shepherded and taught and been with for all of that time. Can you imagine what that trip home on the sailboat was like? for those couple of days while they were sailing from Italia to Antioch. Barnabas, do you remember we were praying for so-and-so's mother? She was ill. Yeah, I remember that. The whole church was praying for her. Yeah, do you think she ever got better, or do you think she went on to be with the Lord? We'll have to look into that when we get home. Now, Menaean, he was one of the teachers in the church. I remember he was just starting the book of Job when we left. I wonder if he's done with the book of Job. And Barnabas would say, no, Saul, he's one of those guys that only preaches on four or five verses a week. It'll take him forever to get through the book of Job. The Lord will be back before he's done with Job. He's probably only done with chapter 1 by now. Well, do you remember we were praying for the salvation of so-and-so? I wonder if the Lord delivered him from his sin. We need to make a note to, to follow up on him the minute we get back in town. Emotional ties. They want to get home. They have completed the work that the Lord has given them to do. And now it's time to go rest. And look how Luke describes it. They had been commended to the work of God which they had accomplished. They're done. Paul and Barnabas have left nothing undone that the Lord wanted them to do. And they have left nothing done poorly. 
That is the faithful mark of a servant of God. You can be called and commissioned and, and sent out and you will do the work that is, needs to be done without being babysat, without being overseen, without being coddled along the whole time. They're called to do something and they're sent out to do it and they complete it. And that is why Paul was so effective. He knew what he had to do. He went out and he did it and then he returned. It's then that you can rest after you finish the work that the Lord has given you to do. Friends, I hope that you're like me. When you pull your sails down in eternity, you want to be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It was done. This is what the Lord asked me to do, and I've done it faithfully, I've done it persistently, and I've done it until He called me home. Paul and Barnabas could rest in that confidence. They had accomplished what the Lord had given them to accomplish. And now they can go home. And that's when you rest. You don't rest before then. You rest when it's done. So we've looked at the remainder of their journey. We have looked at their return to Antioch. I want you to notice the third thing in the last two verses, and that is their report to the church. Verse 23. Sorry, verse 27. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time there with the disciples. They got back into the church, into town, and, and I don't know that the church necessarily knew they were returning. Maybe they expected them on a certain date. But Paul and Barnabas show up, and the church would be excited to see them. Their pastors have returned. And so they gather together the church, and, and it's a large church in the city of Antioch. They gather them together in one place, and Paul and Barnabas give a report as to what the Lord had done with them on their journey. And Luke says they reported all that the Lord had done to them. The highs, the lows, the good things, the bad things, the disappointments and the victories, the discouragements and the spiritual high water marks, all of it they laid out before the church. Do you think Paul told them about the stoning? I think Paul would have told them about the stoning. Somebody would have said, Paul, what happened to your head? Did you fall off a cliff and land on your head while you were gone? Because all of those marks would have been there. That's why Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And he would have said to the people, yeah, this happened in Lystra. I was stoned. They wanted to kill me. They drug me outside the city. They pelted me with rocks. That's where all of these marks came from on my head and my body and my back. They stoned me. They gathered them together, but look at Paul's attitude. They reported all that the Lord had done. Now, if anybody had reason to boast, it was Paul and Barnabas. He could have told them about how he had struck Elimus with blindness on the island of Cyprus. He could have boasted about how he had led a Roman official, Sergius Paulus, to the Lord in Acts 13. Paul could have boasted about all of the signs and wonders that he and Barnabas had wrought in Iconium. He could have boasted about how he had healed that man at Lystra and was worshipped as a god. But look what Luke says. They reported all that the Lord had done with them. That was Paul's perspective. Paul was intent and content to give the glory to God to whom it belonged. For to Paul, he knew, it's not me who does these things, it's the Lord. And so Paul's whole missionary report was not about what he had done, not about what his ministry had accomplished. His whole missionary report was about what the Lord had done through him. And it was all to give God glory. Here's what the Lord did with us. And folks, I think the suffering is in that. I think that's his perspective on suffering. It's what the Lord did with me. 
my suffering. So even Paul's suffering becomes a platform from which he can glorify the Lord and honor the Lord. And that kind of a perspective came after the suffering. He's back in home. He's now content. He's enjoying the fellowship of the church there. He's not in danger of being drug out in the streets and stoned in Antioch. The believers are gathered there together. He's home. It's in the familiar and the friendly. But on the other side of suffering, Paul is able to look back on that and all of the ministry and say, here is what the Lord has done. Matthew Henry had it right. He said, God's grace can accomplish anything without a minister's preaching. But a minister's preaching, even that of Paul's, can accomplish nothing without the grace of God. Did you catch that? God can do anything without our service. He can do anything without our contribution. He can do anything without our involvement. But our involvement can do nothing without the grace of God. That is why Luke says, having been commended to the grace of God, for it was by the grace of God that they accomplished everything that they had set out to do. And here's Paul's perspective. It was what the Lord had done with us. Yeah, we struck Elimus blind. Yeah, I healed the man at Lystra. But it was the Lord who did these things. Folks, you and I are just cracked vessels through which we are pleased to have the Lord minister if he so chooses. But we can't take glory or credit for anything, and neither did Paul. But notice the second element of their report. They reported how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now that little phrase, you might want to underline that if you're in the habit of marking in your Bibles and draw a little arrow down to chapter 15 because that little phrase is Luke's way of transitioning into Acts chapter 15. Paul reported how the Lord had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Their ministry beginning on Cyprus with a direct approach to Sergius Paulus, who was a pagan Roman governor, it was characterized, that whole ministry was characterized by a direct approach to Gentiles. They took the gospel to the Gentiles, and in every city the Jews would oppose them, and Paul would dust his feet off and say, we're going to the Gentiles. They would go to the Gentiles and establish these Gentile churches throughout the area where they traveled. And now Paul is back reporting to them, here are all the pagans, other pagans, who are coming to the Lord. And in these churches, there existed all of these Christians who, before they were believers, had no background and no influence in Judaism, no influence in the Old Testament, utter and complete pagans, most of them. And Paul has led them to the Lord, and he's reporting back to them, this is what God is doing. The pagans, the Gentiles, they're coming into the kingdom. They are trusting in Christ and repenting of their sins and coming into the church in droves. God has opened wide the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now the controversy in Acts 15 is going to be about this. Are Gentiles saved by faith? That's the controversy. And the sparks are going to fly when we get to Acts chapter 15. It's a hot controversy, and it almost split the early church. But this is the controversy. How are Gentiles saved? The same way as Jews? Or do they have to become Jews before they can become Christians? That's the controversy. So we get to the end of Acts chapter 14, and it says that they spent a long time there with the disciples. I imagine that that's when Paul rested. Maybe he took a couple weeks off, took a little Sabbath. Maybe he got right back into teaching and preaching in Antioch. That's actually what I envisioned Paul doing, getting right back into the preaching and teaching ministry. But he stayed there with the disciples for a long time. What does Luke mean by a long time? Probably several months. It's not going to be too long. It's probably going to be about a year that they're going to be traveling up to Jerusalem for the events in Acts chapter 15 and then back to Antioch from which they'll go on their second missionary journey. 
Between Acts 14 and Acts 15, and once again, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bibles, write the book of Galatians is written, or Galatians written. This is when Galatians is written. It's written from Antioch, before the Jerusalem Council, before Acts chapter 15, to those churches that Paul has just founded. Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and Antioch. Those four churches are the recipients of the Galatians letter. They dwell in the province of Galatia. So it is sometime, actually it's in verse 28, Paul writes from Antioch, the book of Galatians, before you get into Acts chapter 15. Now can you imagine what it would have been like to be in the worship service that day when the Apostle Paul gave his missionary report? They didn't have email in those days, so they didn't get a weekly update from the mission field telling them what's going on and who's getting saved and how things are going and what they should pray for. They said goodbye, and the ship sailed from Antioch, and it headed toward the island of Cyprus. And once it was over the horizon, that was likely the last they saw of them. No weekly updates, no letters. That was the last they saw. And they probably heard by rumor of mouth people traveling some of the things that had happened. But when they showed up and they came back into the church, can you imagine what it was like to have them stand up there and relay all of the events that had unfolded that we've been with? And Paul would have had down front his slide projector because you can't give a missionary report without a slide projector. And he would have said something like, now, if you'll just look up on the wall behind me here, you're going to see a few slides from our last year in ministry. And if you'd please turn off the lights, and somebody would run over and they would turn off the lights and couldn't get the slide projector to work, so he'd go down front and fiddle with the thing. And I just this was my cousin's slide projector. It worked fine last night when he was showing me how to run the thing. I don't understand what's going on. You turn the lights back on, please. And they turn the lights back on. And, oh, it's just unplugged. And they would plug it back in. Okay, go ahead and turn off the lights. And the lights would go off, and the pastor would be sitting in the front row saying to himself, why can't we just have one service where everything goes off without a hitch, where there's not some technological or mechanical breakdown? And then the Apostle Paul would start the slide projector, and a big white screen would come up and click, click. Click, click, all white screens. Click, 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 click. I know there's slides in here somewhere. Click, 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 click. Okay, here we are. This is our last day with the church here. This is Sunday afternoon. Do you remember the potluck? Here we are all gathered together before we left. Click, click. Here we are uh, packing our bags for the trip. That's John Mark who was helping us out. He was packing our bags and getting us ready, loading them onto the ship. Click, click. Here we are on the ship with the captain of the ship, and we're sailing towards Cyprus. Click, click. This is the first synagogue that we preached in on the island of Cyprus when we landed there. We went right into the synagogues on a Sabbath, and we began to proclaim the word of the Lord. Click, click. Here we are camped between one end of the island and the other end of the island. This is one of our camps in there. That's John Mark there. He's cooking dinner. That was his night to cook and to clean up, and that's Barnabas and I over there sitting and studying and preparing our messages. Click, click. Now, here we are in the court of Sergius Paulus the Roman governor of the island. And everybody would go, ooh, because Paul was with a Roman governor, a Roman official, a member of the Senate. And you'll see next to him, kind of cut off in the slide, because Barnabas didn't do a very good job with the camera that day. Well, I think he's in the next slide. Click, click. Yeah, there he is. That's Alemus. He's a Jewish false prophet. Click, click. Here I am arguing with Alemus in front of Sergius Paulus. Click, click. Now, this is Alima stumbling over an end table after I called him the son of the devil and struck him with blindness. I don't know how long he was blind. He was still blind when we left Cyprus, but I think it was temporary. Click, click. Now, here we are landing in Italia on our way to Perga. John Mark, he's unloading the baggage and helping us get ready to travel into Perga. Click, click. Here I am in Perga. This was me. This, uh, this was the day I got sick. came down with a fever. I came down with penetrating headaches, could hardly move. Click, click. And this is, um, well, this is, that's, that's John Mark walking away from us with his bag. 
That was a hard day. Click, click. Here we are making the trip up those Taurus Mountains toward Pisidian Antioch. There were times on this trip here where Barnabas had to carry me almost because the illness was so severe. Click, click. Here we are in the Pisidian Antioch synagogue. My first message there. Click, click. And this, you see us outside the synagogue here gathered with all of these couples. They came up to us and asking us to come back the next Sabbath and speak these things again. And so we did. Click, click. And here we are the second Sabbath in Pisidian Antioch. And there was a lot of people who got saved there. A lot of Jews opposed us, but there were, I told them, look, from now on I'm going to the Gentiles. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And you should have seen the Gentiles rejoice in that synagogue. They were jumping and praising God that God had opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles. And folks, as many as were appointed to eternal life in Antioch, believed. Click, click. Now here we are in Iconium. The reason we went to Iconium is because we were sick of the opposition in Antioch and the verbal opposition was intense. But here we get to the city of Iconium. Click, click, and and you'll see here this is the mob getting ready to stone Barnabas and I. We had to flee. Click, click. So here we are fleeing. Click, click. (laughs) And we went on to Lystra. Now you see this crowd, Lister, you see a man who's laying down in the crowd there. Click, click, that's the man I healed. See the tears of joy running down his face? See him standing up there and hugging us and rejoicing over this? Click, click. Now here's the crowd that had gathered after I healed the man. And you can see Barnabas trying to take the knife from the priest of Zeus. He's about ready to sacrifice those two oxen that are just on the other side of the crowd there. And Barnabas was trying to coax the knife away from because they were, they were worshiping us, thinking that we were gods. Hermes and Zeus. Click, click, here I am preaching the gospel to that crowd in Lystra. Click, click, here I am being stoned by the crowd in Lystra. Click, click, here they are dragging me outside of the city by my heels. Click, click, here I am lying in a pool of blood outside the city. They thought I was dead. Click, click, after I came to, I got up and I walked back into the city of Lystra. And there were some disciples there. And you'll see them bandaging up my head and my wounds there. The lady who is uh, cutting the bandages, her name is Lois. Uh, that's uh, Her daughter is Eunice. She's the one that's wrapping my head. And you can see their, their young boy there, his name is Timothy. The whole family came to the Lord. Their father's not in the picture because he's a Greek. He's not a believer. But this whole family came to the Lord. God-fearing Jews. And I, I think there's something about this young lad, Timothy. I think he has a lot of potential. And he came to the Lord quick. He grew quickly. I think God is going to use that man at some time in the future. Click, click. Now here we are leaving for Lystra, leaving Lystra the very next day. And somebody in the crowd would say, you walked 40 miles after being stoned the previous day? Well, I walked slowly 40 miles after being stoned the previous day. But here we are leaving for Derby. Click, click. We established the church in Derby. Click, click. Now here are all your brothers and sisters in Christ in the city of Derby. You had a part in their salvation. By sending us out, you had a part in their eternal destiny. And you'll get to see them in the kingdom. Click, click. Here are the elders that we appointed in the church at Derby. Click, click. Here is the entire church at Lystra. All of these believers that you had a part in their eternal salvation. Their eternal destiny was changed because you sent us out with your blessing. And you'll get to see all of these brothers and sisters in Christ in the kingdom. Click, click. Here are the elders that we appointed at Lystra. Click, click. Now, here we are in Iconium. This is the whole church at Iconium. All of these dozens and dozens of believers. Their eternities were changed because of you. 
and you have a part in their eternal salvation. And you'll get to see them in the kingdom. Click, click. Now here are the elders that we appointed in Iconium. Click, click. Here's the church at Antioch. See all of those believers, Gentile believers. Dozens and dozens of them. You had a part in their eternal salvation. Because of you sending us out, they're saved. You'll see them in the kingdom. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. In Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and Antioch. Click, click. Here are the elders that we appointed in the city of Antioch. Click, click. And this is the sunset as we're sailing back in to Antioch. The last day of the ship, only four days ago. Now, friends, can you see all those images in your mind's eye? That's quite a trip, isn't it? It's amazing. But you know what's amazing about it? It's not what Paul did. It's what God did through Paul. That's what's amazing. What's amazing is how God can use a man or a woman who's completely surrendered to him and completely obedient to him. D.L. Moody says the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is completely surrendered to him. I believe that. That's what God does through obedient, serving, and yielded people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for examples like Paul and Barnabas who are faithful to the end of their calling. And we pray that you would impress upon our hearts all that you are doing around the world through the ministries that we are involved in through our influence And remind us once again, Father, that we will not know until eternity all of the fruit that you have brought through our efforts and through our service. And we thank you that it is not we who do these things, but it is our God who works with us and through us. And we give you praise because all of the glory belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.